brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, Happy New Year, Higher Side Chatters. Or is it? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and there's no avoiding the psychological tendency to assume that turning over a new calendar year marks some sort of turning to the page on the problems we've been dealing with, and a fresh start at recreating the world we failed to create last year, or the year before that. Gym memberships, diet plans, online courses, or even dedicating the proper attention to astrological ritual timing and creating a robust magical practice to bend reality to your will. These are the hopes for a new year and the traps of thinking in linear time. Because the truth is that we are in the middle of a much bigger story. 2020 brought unexpected horrors that won't go away any faster than that extra holiday wait, but the fruitful advice we've been getting for years from today's returning guest Gordon White about navigating this very chapter in the big story is ripe for the taking if you haven't already. In a record-breaking 12 episodes of Christmas Past, we've talked about everything from Gnosticism and non-human logic to animism and the unadvertised secret religion and philosophy of the archon-ridden ruler class. But he's also laid out well in advance many tools from the magical toolbox to keep one's head on straight in times like these and ways to position ourselves as to not get crushed by the crashing waves of COVID chaos before we even knew what that meant. He advised us to be driven yet flexible in that Jack Sparrow way just before it became totally necessary, said that we can make a bigger difference by not going after Sauron directly, but by learning permaculture practices, aligning with the good, and living in accordance with the Book of Bilbo. And he reminded us of the importance of becoming truly invincible, as if he knew we were due for the largest fear-based capture campaign the world has probably ever seen, under the guise of a selfless elite loving humanity like Lenny loved the rabbit. The breadcrumbs were laid for mental, financial, and magical armor, so how prepared do you feel? If you're new, Gordon is the author of Starships, Pieces of Eight, and the Chaos Protocols, and he's also the headmaster of the world's best magic school at runesoup.com. He's taught me way more than I can remember or regurgitate awkwardly in a thousand podcast appearances of my own, the destroyer of technocratic dystopias, the wizard of Waverly Places, and the newly crowned president of Permaculture Tasmania, 
my pig chimp hybrid hombre from another hemisphere, Gordon, my man. Welcome back. Thanks, Greg. Ah, the pig chimp. That's that's way back. That's like episode one or two, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. I try to work in as many of them as I could. And it's like such a habit I've formed of trying to outline a guest's previous appearances in those intros. But when we're on lucky number 13, it's hard to get deeper than the broad strokes. Yeah, but also like I was thinking that beforehand. I'm like, what's Greg going to say this time? Because I haven't done anything this year. <laughs> it's usually like, I mean, you know, version one of 2020 was going to be, we would have been in the jungle and all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, he's going to have to dip into the repeats. And Pig Chimp was there, simpler times. <laughs> yes, yes, to say the least. And through those times, we have talked about so much. You've shared so many valuable insights across many hours. But I do think it's really important to stop for a minute and focus on what this all really says about me and my skills as a counterculture talent scout. Clearly. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just half kidding, although I do know how to pick them. And let's kick this off with a little bit more about time. Because of where we are, I think maybe it will be helpful medicine to people if we're lucky. But you did a recent podcast with Catherine Fink that was largely about mythic time versus linear time. And I got a lot out of it, but you said things in there like linear time is a bizarre spell and that it is the ultimate empire prison. And of course, there are many spells and mental cul-de-sac prisons in the Western bubble that we tend to latch onto that we find don't really exist much outside of that bubble. And time is going to be one of these things. But why is time such an important one to get right? Because... To some extent, everything runs on it. I know that sounds silly, but more than that, we definitely don't have it right. So I don't think it's a question of like, oh, we need to get time right. I think we need to realize that we don't have it right. And one of the most damaging things we've done is to separate it out from place or everything else, right? And this is a sort of enlightenment guess or premise that we can do that as our measurements and little clocks got better and better. Because none of the side data or even some of the decent physics suggests that time is a fundamentally separate thing or aspect of the universe. So at the very baseline, we have it wrong because we think it's sort of separate from everything else. But in the case of the so-called West, the Enlightenment, which is that period of time about three and a half centuries ago where we decided we were cleverer than anyone else, and it literally was that, in the same way that the Renaissance was a self-declared thing, which was they self-declared a renewal of classical wisdom and those intervening years, which we shouldn't but still call the Dark Ages, were times of savagery and sort of a fallen intellect. The Enlightenment was this idea that we have, for the first time ever, lifted ourselves out of superstition. And everything that came before it and all other peoples were savage and primitive and and superstitious, including ourselves, but with the arrival of basically the machine metaphor or this idea that the universe is this intricate machine that can be wholly understood with this sort of disparate and disconnected or dissociated rather scientific observation principles and to be wholly understood by it. That was sort of important. It's a silly belief. It's a superstitious belief of itself. That's why Bruno Latour says we've never been modern. But out of that comes linear time, because the Enlightenment bakes into its own advertising that the world will continue to get better as we do more science and, you know, wander about the globe with our little measuring devices and pull 
plants out of the soil in Western Australia and press them into a book and send them back to London and all of these kind of things, that this is an ever-improving or ever-enlightening process. And linear time was one of those things. It was an ever-increasing in uh, kind of like minutiae, where we get the word minute from, idea that the universe is precisely ordered. It travels in one direction at a fixed speed from beginning to end, like the great machines that we were building in the 18th and 19th century. So anywhere else in the world, that is not how time is conceptualized. And importantly, that's not at all how we experience it. So even within the schools of European philosophy, we have something like phenomenology, which will tell you that that's not it. Like reality exists. This is an oversimplification. Reality exists in that experiential moment. And we've certainly, when you're in love and you are separated from your lover, time goes slowly. When you're a child and it's the holidays, time goes really fast. And when you're stoned, that's a really good one. In fact, it can be both <laughs> depending on what you're doing. But the whole kind of point is that we've never, until 350 years ago, considered time to be linear and separate from everything else and precisely marching into an ever-enlightening future. And that has kind of political implications, right? So if you look at how, and this is sort of an interesting double empire hit here, for people who don't know, Michael Palin well, he's a member of Monty Python, but he was sort of famous in the 90s for his series of BBC documentaries, travel documentaries. And one of the ones was traveling through Africa by train. And there are trains in Africa that won't leave until they're full. Uh, and same thing, you'll get this in buses in Cusco and so on, where the time the vehicle leaves is when the people actually are ready to go. Now, that's really inclusive. And it's sort of a use of technology that aligns with how humans have moved before. So when it was time to move camp 150,000 years ago, you didn't look at your clock and say, we leave at 7.13am. And if you're not leaving at that time, you're left behind. The value of the human experience of the moment is captured in how we live. And that's very much displaced in an imperial model, particularly when it comes to trains. And you know, Greenwich Mean Time and all the rest of it. The train leaves at 7.13 a.m. because that is when time is real. And if you're late, if you're late by a minute or you otherwise aren't ready to go, and that doesn't mean disorganization. You see how that's displaced living? Because it may not be disorganization. It may just be things happen in life. And we used to have that as an awareness of time. If you look at hunter-gatherers now even, and this is sort of famous anthropological examples of encounters in Aboriginal Australia, where the anthropologist might be told, okay, so tomorrow morning we're going fishing. And so he'll show up on the beach and no one will be there and he'll hang around for a bit and head back to camp or wait. And then everyone will mysteriously show up at 1 p.m. And that's kind of in that, oh, now, now is fishing time. And it's that intuitive experience of when the fish are running and, and all that kind of an embedded and organic understanding of time that we've completely abandoned, even though that's how we experience it. Mm. Good points. I definitely think the time conversation is some really good stoner mind-bending stuff because we are so conditioned to think in these terms. But cycles of time and the overlap with the big operation have definitely been on my mind a lot lately. And on the subject of time, we are recording this not long after the grand conjunction everyone's been buzzing about. And way back at the 2019 Portland event, you and Austin were both saying, 
look, if you think things are crazy now with Trump and this impeachment, well, strap in, it's going to get nuts. And clearly there's value in uh, an astrological forecast like that. And I've just been a big fan of looking at the space weather, as you call it, and looking at the road ahead. And I heard you and Austin's forecast for the first half of this year, and it sounds like the storm has just started and 2021 and 2022 are sort of a package deal. It might not be the news we want to hear, but I'd rather be prepared for the reality. What is the astrology telling us to expect? Yeah, like you sort of said in the intro, we are even not necessarily psychologically, it's almost economically conditioned to have this new year moment as our beginning or reset point. And how dare you? I'm clearly going to lose the holiday weight in January like everyone else. <laughs> but again, if we sort of step outside of that artificial framework of time and and move into, and I, I have this kind of flex where I say astrology is 100% real. And it's a joke because people kind of talk about astrology in the wrong way. It's a language, right? So astrology is 100% real or 100% true because it is a language of meaning and how we be in a moment. And it contains within it some predictive mechanisms that can give you above chance predictions, right? But that's usually what people are arguing about when they say whether they think astrology is real and fake. There's no such thing as a fake language. Even Klingon is a real language, right? Mm -hmm. So I have this flex where I say astrology is 100% true. And what I mean by that is it's a language of meaning and a way of understanding relationality and things like time and so on. And I think it's more satisfying because it contains within it the invitation to improve yourself in a well-being sense or just be more satisfied with how you live your life and all the rest of it. So yet, in some respects, this is a flow model thing. There's never a beginning and end of time. There's never, ironically enough, a great reset there is the flow and relation of things and forces throughout it. So if we're looking at 2021, we've had some moves around now-ish, like we've had some moves in really long-term cycles and the great conjunction at the beginning of a new triplicity is one of them, which I'll return to. But what you can essentially see is that a lot of the stuff that happened in the model in 2020 is still in play. And what that means is how that necessarily limits or warps how changes in the so-called space weather can occur in the next couple of years. And the longer-term configurations tell a story of 2021 and 2022 being best thought of as one adventure, <laughs> I guess. So to some extent, you could either say New Year's was, well, a new multi-century year was the Great Conjunction. But in another sense, 2021 begins during Aquarius season where Austin and I were talking, where Austin in particular said this is where it's like six of the seven planets are going to be in Aquarius. So they're going to be in the one spot. This is where we get the update. So it's where the new rules become visible and particularly rules to do with governance and control and so on. Because what you've had there. Saturn, well, Saturn and Jupiter, this is the great conjunction and the change in triplicity, have moved. And we have them both, at least at that point in time, in Aquarius. And so Saturn in Aquarius is a different control mechanism to Saturn in Capricorn, which we've just moved out of. Saturn rules both of these signs. But Capricorn is an Earth one. And we've just gone through the greatest imprisonment of humans 
So Saturn is finite and locking in and strict time and so on in people's homes ever. And that's Saturn in Capricorn. And we're moving or have moved into Saturn in Aquarius, where Aquarius is still ruled by Saturn, but it's an air sign. So the governance or control or policing is things like drones and apps and QR codes and, and all the rest of it. And I saw this coming. Austin and I have been talking about this triplicity change for about five years now. Yes. And it's been one of our best predictions, particularly when it comes to, I think, the triplicity of air we're moving into. The triplicity is a collection of configurations that tell the story of the governance of the planet. And we've just finished the triplicity of Earth, which coincided with the rise of European empires. And so the idea of governance and value is tied up with land. And we've moved into an air one. And I said, this is, well, we do become multiplanetary in the next two centuries, right? If we aren't already. But that becomes, data is the new land. I said that at the beginning of the year. That turned out to be pretty good. But when I say beginning of the year, we are recording this at the end of 2020. <laughs> right, right. Um, that turned out to be pretty good. And also that it's like the era of UFOs. But it's UFOs in the sense of Boeing tech, not necessarily little green men. So we, we're moving into the world of 5G satellites and COVID common passes and all the rest of it. Governance and value has melted into air, if you will. And so this is what I mean. Astrology is 100% true because it gives us a language to talk about things and find meaning and context in them. So we will get that kind of Aquarian update. So we will see the shape of how, at the very least, the governance plan intends to go from, let's say, mid-February, which is not surprising one way or the other. One way or the other, you'll have a president, for better and for worse by then. And the rumor is, if it's Biden, which it's overwhelmingly likely to be, there's all these stories about, well, we'll have a 100-day mask mandate or a 100-day lockdown or so on. And we'll, one way or the other, we'll know from February how they're trying to roll that kind of stuff out. That's not the end of the story. That's just where the plan is announced. Because there are some Uranus, Saturn, Uranus is very disrupting and is in Taurus. And there's some Uranus, Saturn squares coming up, which, as Austin mentions, tells the story of unrest and resistance to the plan. It always does. It's not just now, it's unrest is guaranteed. And that process continues for a couple of years. That's what Austin meant about we should consider 2021 and 2022 to be, however exhausting 2020 was, the one year. <laughs> uh, in terms of how we sit with it and what we choose to do, not just where we find meaning in it, but tactically what we choose to do. So it's more like if people think, although I can't imagine anyone listening to this show would, now that we have this experimental gene therapy available for everyone, we can go back to whatever you thought normal life was before. It's just not in play in any of the models. There is more of this to run. And yeah, so I think that's kind of the story of it. There are, and the, crucially, coming back to how people should absorb information like this, listen to the show, whatever, and fold it into their own scenario planning, which people struggle with. And it's disappointing. I mean, I have had a background, a career that required me to kind of do it. But Americans in particular, I think because of the narrative, you guys, that sort of American dream boondoggle you're forced to grow up in, aren't very good at the hope for the best plan for the worst. There seems to be a shoot for the stars and fuck it if it doesn't work. 
<laughs> idea. And that's really dangerous. It's good, like it's inspiring, but hope for the best, plan for the worst is how I want people to sit with the range of scenarios that could happen. And that's why I think there's a lot of medicine in thinking in longer term cycles and and so on, because it to be in a position to respond rather than react is what I said on the show. You want to get to be there. And this is we do stuff like talk about cycles and other forecasting models uh, amongst the membership and so on so that. Not as a hobby. We talked about this before, but I like conspiratainment, but it is kind of like Sudoku for people who don't like Sudoku, right? Like <laughs> it's what do you expect to do once you're kind of collecting facts and so on? And I kind of retain that chaos magician, cunning folk approach, which is I encounter information looking for actionable intelligence. <laughs> so I don't necessarily need to solve silly things like I'm not sure where the upside is of working out whether you th or having an opinion on whether you think this apparent virus came from a lab in Wuhan or bat soup or not even there, right? What are you going to do if you solve that definitively? Like, how does that roll into your plans for your scenario plans for the next couple of years? It doesn't. And what people kind of find a fact or potential fact that they like and ossify around it like they're generating a pearl so you'll find in well i'm sure you know this but in conspiratainment land there are some people who will not be moved off the idea that this is a chinese bioweapon right and so every other component that comes into it now that we find out that it's got a 99.99 percent recovery rate it's like oh well then it's a bungled one or it's waiting a couple of years and it'll do another thing or what have you and you go you guys um that's not how you scenario plan you kind of move back to, and we said this at the very beginning, I'm quite proud of this, because I had virus pilled myself years before doing starships. The people need to bracket what they think a virus is, and you can look at that as a separate project to come to an opinion on what viruses are and what they do, and bracket that and then move into the scenario plan. But if you're fixated on, oh, it's a bioweapon, you're too far downstream from some of the stuff you need to do that does provide actionable intelligence, right? Because you need to sit with what you think viruses are and how you think they work because you need to make immediate health interventions in your own life. And if you're just saying bioweapon, you're kind of too far down away from the exercise and dietary and meditational things and supplemental things that you can do to be like, well, whatever it is, I'm good now, <laughs> right? And that's the bit that I think people necessarily struggle with. And it's made worse by the amount of fear porn that like unprecedented in the history of the world we've been through. But I, I like cycle models and astrology, just circling back to your question, for that reason that it forces you in a funny way into a kind of scenario planning because you look at what's coming without trying to play the Sudoku game of be like, oh, well, that'll be when Biden puts masks on everyone and, and blah, blah, blah. You don't have to, because you might be wrong about that. You don't have to drop down into a finite prediction. You can stay up in the, in the model saying like, we get an update of the plan to do with governance and control around February. So mid-February. So between now and then, try and survive the, try and stay in your house if you're being evicted, you know, all that kind of stuff and say, I can't really make my long-term plans or rather it's better to attempt some longer term plans mid February ish, right? And that's the kind of medicine that's available in, in these models. And it's not to say that 
the conspiracy stuff isn't fun. It is. But what I kind of mentioned in some of the premium member presentations in 2020 is you'll still have guests on about JFK in the next few years. Like it's This stuff doesn't ever get solved. This stuff becomes endless. And not this isn't even bad. This stuff becomes an endless field of speculation. How many people really died? Blah, 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 blah. Like this is going to go on for decades, right? And there's even value or, or dare I say enjoyment in it in the same way people are trying to solve what happened at Roswell or what happened to JFK or whatever. Now, this is another one of those events. Right. In the meantime, we're, it's also one we're living through. So you don't need to solve it to extract the actionable intelligence to move forward and have like the best and most coherent life that is available or on offer for the next few years. Yes, exactly. I do agree with you. And we have been pretty critical on critiquing conspiracy culture, especially in the later shows that we've done, the more the more recent ones. And it is a classic problem of getting hung up on those little details, getting caught in the weeds on was it x y or z and we will never know and that's kind of my attitude is i like talking to different guests who have different perspectives but i try not to get attached to any one there are definitely some that rank higher than others in terms of uh their possibility but yeah it's it's hard like in peace times we could talk about missing 411 and bigfoot and have a good time but i guess i'm trying to build some weird bridge between conspiratainment and conspiratainment. I don't know, but I like it. it's tough. <laughs> Things are so much more serious than they were. And it's not speculation anymore. And I, I want people who have that skeptical conspiracy background to use it. You know, this should make your life better, as we've said before. Yeah, it's host to water stuff. And there's really only, so let me, let me describe it this way. Once all this happened, from the very beginning, I've been reasonably proud of my characterization of it, bracket the virus and look at how we're going to end up, which is app-based permissioning to get you anywhere out of your house, be it the supermarket or another country, and that being the center of bulldozing the real economy so it can be built on this new platform. And that's happened slash is happening. But consequently, I've had nine months of, in my personal life, repositioning the things that I wanted to do or repositioning or redirecting it towards a changed range of scenarios. Because I was expect it's funny, like with these models, you can know the when, but not necessarily the what. So, and we kind of did that at the beginning of the year with some of Armstrong's models and, and what have you. But for 2020 and this, for people who are keen, this information's all there in the, in the members area. There's a sequence of courses that allow you to kind of sit with what is available to you, what kind of baseline fallback positions in some of the worst of case scenarios and how to go about building them and getting to a state of coherence for where we are now at the beginning of 2021 to kind of move forward. The magician's job is to change the probable into the possible. And that's going to be kind of like my watchword for 2021. But you can't do that if you haven't looked fearlessly at the best view of what you think is happening and adjusted your life to match the range of scenarios that you think are now more or less likely. And this doesn't mean, this is the thing, right? Like it doesn't mean, although if you can afford one, it's a lovely place in the world, but it doesn't mean having a bunker next to Elon Musk in the South Island of New Zealand necessarily. But it does mean 
what are your worst case scenarios? And it, it's, it's not expecting them. That's to make sure that you have a policy so that if you need it, it's there and kind of moving up that chain and having a range of stuff. And there's a there's a tremendous pivot that I think people are too afraid to do. And it's a special kind of fear because it's a refusal to realize that the world doesn't work the way they think it does. So they're losing a world. And, and this is what's left of the sort of the remaining liberal scolds is that it is scarier for them to look at the real world than it is to stay in this kind of like hostile prison. Did you, do you remember watching, I thinking about this the other day, Empire of the Sun, that Spielberg film from like the 80s? It's been a long time, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when they're on that forced march and they come across all those Rolls Royces in the desert and there's some woman who's like, no, let's just stay, having been traumatized out of their home, she was going to stay there and basically starve or die of thirst as they continue their forced march because she recognized the cars and she's just sitting in this car going, let's just stay here. It's all very like land before time. Instead of finding the great valley, you find this little oasis and go, let's stay here. It's fine. It's that kind of, no, if you stay in denial of what's really happening, you are more likely to be destroyed by it, right? Like it's that sort of, you kind of need a metaphor for that. And it doesn't, I'm trying not to scare people, although whenever I do, I can tell it's because they're attached to this world. Like the stuff that I've done this year is actually quite, I think, well, 2020, quite hopeful because it's looking with fearlessness at the world and then adjusting your kind of trajectories towards joy and flourishing anyway. But this is, I think, what people need to do. And it's a skill, right? Like, like scenario planning, if people don't know how to do it, they're kind of just bamboozled by the fear. Right, right. Well, it isn't a class in the Rockefeller education system, funny enough. What a shock. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And on the subject of strategy and, you know, things like bracketing the virus, in your vertical line presentation, you talk a lot about how to have the conversation. and. You say not to go too hard on terrain theory or on viruses directly, which is pretty much the exact opposite of what I've been doing. But to me, the terrain theory literature has been great medicine for the fear and moving the conversation away from, well, what is COVID? Is it 5G? Is it a bioweapon? Is it just a hoax? Yep. Which is one of those low res arguments that we want to avoid. Well, I think we've all settled on where we are when it comes to that stuff at this point. And now I'm a little more on the Allison McDowell stuff. Good. And you say in this presentation that to boil their highest goal down to a sentence, they are not replacing a currency. They are replacing the very idea of currencies with a digital control system. And I agree that that's the play. But I want to ask you about the catalyst, because much like where we are now, we could read between the lines of what they would say, and we knew where they wanted to go, but many of us didn't see the trigger that was COVID-19 until it happened. And they were like, oh, okay, this is how we get there. But when it comes to moving to a tokenized digital currency, that feels like a very tall order to me. And I guess I have a bit of a blind spot as to the rationale that will have everyone turning in their dollars for FedCoin. What say you? Well, the important thing, and this is the other piece of the hope, right, is that this doesn't succeed. So what I said to Alison when she was on the sort of private member show as well, because I love her, is the tragedy is we have to deal with the attempted implementation and then its failure. 
And how that plays out is that not enough people will work out what's actually happening in time to stop it, but in time to make sure it doesn't get implemented. So that's the difference. We're at a point now where somewhere between 60 and 70% approval rates for you know, this unprecedented attack on the working class and the lumpen proletariat, which is the most classic progressive thing. Right? In the history of mankind, there has never been an attack on the working class quite like this. And it has about a 60 to 70% approval at the moment. By the end of next year, that'll in the US, it'll drop down to about 40%, which is proper civil unrest numbers. So it won't work, and it's already not working. So we can talk about civil unrest in general, where and although it's media blackouts, particularly in the US, enormous protests in Germany and Spain and so on, and France, although that's a separate category. And certainly there has been in, in, in the US as well. But if you look at, so for instance, the absurd lockdowns in London just before Christmas for this spurious, idiotic, 70% more transmissible nonsense that came out of the same Imperial College criminals that the original formulations of how many people were going to die did. So complete crap right on schedule. But look at the difference in how London has behaved to their tremendous credit versus, say, March of this year, when I was, in fact, there for it. They didn't sit at home going, oh, this is worrying. A couple of million of them swarmed the train stations and roads to get out of town before it came in. That's actually civil unrest. My parents did the same thing to come down to the farm here in Tasmania for Christmas because of a smattering of clearly false positive, because of all the stuff you've spoken about before, positive PCR tests in a part of Sydney led to, as inevitably, uh, overreactions of potential border closures and all the rest of it. So they flew down here a few days early to make sure they actually could get here for Christmas. This is civil unrest. So what you're actually seeing is a change in sentiment in the population when it happens, where we expect it to be placards and David Icke talking in Trafalgar Square. And it is that. But the stuff you need to make sure you're, you're observing is things like that. My parents are like boomers. My dad's a retired doctor, which, by the way, he knows. Find the older doctors and find the ones who will tell you that the official story is shite, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so when it comes to how do you think they'll do it, I know how they think they'll do it. Because Europe's used to this. You'll have a month to hand your dollars in or convert them, at which point they will no longer become legal tender. But it doesn't happen to the US dollar first because the majority of physical dollars are outside the US. So it's sort of impossible to cancel because it will still have a market as a currency outside the US, even if it is canceled, right? So it, this is one of the many reasons why it won't work. And it's, you can be confident in saying that, Greg. You say, I don't know how, maybe I'm, you know, you actually know a lot about crypto. So you know that infrastructurally, we are not there yet. They want to roll this out as soon as possible, particularly in Europe, to save the Euro project. But the infrastructure isn't there. It's what 5G is for, of course. It's so that you, you need ubiquitous 5G to have your currency replacement, which is why nothing will stop it, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is tragic. We just need to find um, mitigation means around it. But you're completely correct. It's like, I don't see how they do it. It doesn't matter. They think they're smarter than you, and they're going to do it. So, but the good news is it goes up and it comes down. That's also the bad news because we don't actually live in the tyranny that Alison describes. We live in the attempted implementation of it <laughs> until enough of us realize that this is not what's going on. And it's actually that process that brings into play some of the starker scenarios in the sort of 2020 years, 2022 to 2027 
that Martin Armstrong and, and others are looking at, which is civil war, breakup of the US, extremely high risk of international war by 2027. So this decade is going to suck. That doesn't mean it's all over. It's something you have to look at clearly. I draw inspiration from my grandmother's life. She got a scholarship to she got an opera scholarship to London from Australia, and then war broke out and all scholarships were void. And by the time war was over, she was married and had a family. And so there was none of that for women at the time anymore. She still had a great life. And things will happen that, because this is what happens on Earth. Things will happen that will get in the way of your dreams. That doesn't mean you stop dreaming. That doesn't mean you don't move towards joy and coherence and, and having a happy life. In fact, those things in particular become more important in 2021 because they are a theater of conflict with the archons. So resonating with life in that animus sense, like actual vital energy of being with friends and eating grass-fed animal products and, and all these things that are what being human is, are under assault. So to do them is not just an act of resistance, it's a restoration of the living field. It is a it is an essential magical act because we're in a field war. If you look at what they're trying to do with, you know, these non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions that do nothing, like, you know, masks and keeping people separate, it's an assault on the living field and humans' natural tendency towards coherence. So you cohere regardless. You, you find ways of doing it, right? Well, cheers to that. And I had that exact statistic in my notes that, you know, 70% of people agree with these protocols now and it will drop to 40 within or about in 10 to 12 months. And with that as like the, you know, the book ends on, on the next year, I kind of hate to think how much worse it will have to get to flip 30% of people knowing how much they love the mainstream story, like for them to really flip, for the average guy to flip. True. Whew, True. It's going to be rough. I mean, their head's really going to be in a vice this year, it seems. So like in the presentation you mentioned in the members area, all I have in terms of nice things to say about that is the Napoleonic idea of never interrupt your enemy when he's in the process of making a mistake. So you can kind of feel in the area, because I know people, you need to realize that you're magicians are better at this or anyone who's kind of involved in magic or spirit in that way you were playing a much bigger game and you just need to feel out because i know people are going to want to intervene and say well let's get into the streets let's march and i'm like it's not the time this comes back to time right so in the same way you can feel when it is time to go fishing and that's when you show up to the beach otherwise there's no point there's no fish there it is not the time for that because as we've seen you're kind of effectively out on your own not necessarily on your own, but it doesn't shift the field yet. It will. And in some places, it's really starting to. I mean, California, where you are, is a good example where it's probably not, although there's a lot of middle class jobs there. You guys are probably in the 50, 60 range of approval, 50, 60% range of approval, but it, like it's unevenly distributed. This is an Armstrong civil unrest model prediction, right? But for it to get to 40%, it will. It will have to get worse. But again, if we know this, we can be in a state of coherence. And it does come back to maybe where this question began, which is how do you talk to people, friends and loved ones, about it and about this moment? And I mean, I'm in that situation. I've got a sister in France who is very much imprisoned by this fear-based world story. And if I don't, most of the time we all just let it pass because she's not ready to have that discussion. 
So you kind of can't do anything. My dad's joke, I think I've used it on the show, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change. And it's a field shift that changes that. You can't argue people into a new position. So if you want to help or intervene or do things now, it's at the level of operating with the living field. And that will help now. And don't argue with people who are imprisoned by fear or don't get into arguments with them. It makes it worse. Mm -hmm. It's an assault on the field when you do that, right? So you either ignore it or if it is forced into discussion, and you need to work out, this comes back to what you think the virus is, what world story they're in. Are they in the, this is a dangerous, deadly new disease that emerged from a wet market in Wuhan in November of last year, well, November of 2019 for when this comes out? You need to work out where they are because there are patient responses to that. So in that case, you go, well, it actually isn't that deadly. And don't argue with them, but to say there are now very good official data that shows that this has a 99.99% recovery. And that's based on that psychopath, that Irish psychopath at the World Health Organization, who in May said we'd have to take children out of people's homes. Every time he tries to scare people, he just adds another 10 million to the guess of people who've been infected by this every time. And so every time he does that, it's so dumb. It actually brings the recovery rate down. It's like, he, he said, oh, I reckon 200 million people on the earth have had it and get ready because another 500 are going to. And I'm like, well, that gives it a 99.99%. Anyway, yeah, yeah. beside the point, the <laughs> point is, whatever story you're in, you, you make it about you when you say it, right? So for people who are maybe recapitulating some of the arguments they've had over the holiday season now that we're in January, the next time you have that opportunity, you can kind of patiently say, well, Whilst I think there is cause for concern, there is also an opportunity to ameliorate that concern by looking at some of these data, especially as fear is extremely immunosuppressive. And that's you in to say how I am processing this or I am how I am sitting with this unprecedented health incident or however you want to say it, again, depending on where they are, is to look at these data and to not operate out of a place of fear because it's immunosuppressive. And you kind of say, I'm... I'm sitting with alternatives as a medicinal method for me. And if you do that, because they're, you kind of got to give them an opportunity to not admit their fear, but realize that they aren't the only person who's afraid, because otherwise it's a, anger is usually a cover for fear. So you jump straight to an argument because people are in that state of fear about losing the world and so on. But you just can't. I recognize the urgency of it. Everyone does. But you cannot argue people into a state of awareness and save the world. It's never happened. It's not just now. It's never happened. Any kind of great shift in how civilizations rise and fall, you don't intervene by yelling at your aunt at Christmas and then marching on Washington. It's not, <laughs> it's not what happens now. Right. Other things do, right? But it's so important. This is the scenario planning stuff. It's so important to see that and to realize that when you do operate, when you do react from this idea, but she's wrong and this is all wrong. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> but you don't get to solve it. Solutionism is part of the problem, right? So one of my favorite guests I had on in 2019 was Dr. Bayo Komalafe, who's a sort of, he has this idea called post-activism. He's a Nigerian-born philosopher and psychologist. And he has this idea called post-activism, and it's a really good way of phrasing it. He says, what if the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? And crisis is nonspecific there. 
it is about things like climate alarmism and inequality and so on. But the question is, what if the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? And it's rhetorical because it is. And that's why he has post-activism and we had discussions around making sanctuary and other things you can in fact do. Because responding to a crisis is solutionism. It is to jump back into that metaphor of the universe as a machine that you can fix, like replace this spigot and adjust this part. And the universe isn't a machine, it's alive. And that's not how you participate in the ongoings and livings of a living universe. So when you feel compelled to yell at your aunt and march on Washington, realize that you've fallen back into that world story that has given us this clusterfuck of disasters and psychopathic billionaires in the first place. And the good news is that world is ending. The bad news is it falls to us to live through, thrive in, and be the thing that comes after it. And that's really optimistic, as in I find optimism in it rather than that's an optimistic assessment. It's a guaranteed assessment. <laughs> that's what we have to do, right? Like that's just a 100% prediction. But I find optimism in it because it frees you from convincing people of things, of, of having yes. to like fall into arguments and so on. And again, this is a, and I don't want to use a war metaphor because I was about to say this is a battle that we, that has many fronts. But it is something like that, but it's like a movement or a dance that has many movements. So for instance, I have spent the last nine months getting the premium members and, and so on in a situation where they can be those things that have to come next, right? So, but your situation is different, at least in the short term, which by the way, not only am I, am I a regular guest on the show, I think I'm the only one who is also a THC Plus member that comes on regularly. Yeah. Yeah. So may I take this opportunity to speak for my fellow THC Plus members and tell you to shut up when you disparage your your appearances on other shows and, and, and your capacity to be a mouthpiece for what's going on? Because we don't expect you to have the answers, but we go with you on the journey of, of finding them. And you should be, you are to be congratulated for doing so, Greg. I think it was, I know we spoke about this in June and there was a kind of like, moment a couple of weeks after that where you're like no fuck it yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna go out there and get as many people as i can to cohere around the right way of being with this information and what we need to do and so you had to be congratulated for it but that is quite so that is a combative thing that needed to happen it doesn't mean we are passive when i say you need to not fall into that war story but you don't go on that show to win an argument. You go on that show so that people can realize that they are tremendously empowered to take sovereignty over their own health and literally not die of whatever's going on. Like that's the message you bring, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a good example of it. But yeah, let me just say congratulations and also on the behalf of the THC members, stop saying mean things about yourself. We come here to listen. <laughs> uh, too kind, too kind. But yeah, I mean, strategy is very important. I've asked so many guests and Usually I don't get a much better answer than, well, we're not all going to make it. And I hate that answer. So I appreciate what you're saying there. And one of my best strategies in the inner circle of friends and family has been just to say, look, we have the data that fear is bad for our health and also that community and laughter is good for our health, mental and otherwise. So I really have no choice but to kind of put this out of mind. And if you want to grab a beer, I'm down to do that. And uh, maybe we just won't advertise it online that we gathered. But I just think without having to get deep into the whole thing, it's like, look, we know that good times 
put us in a good mental state and fear is bad. So like, what other choice do we have but to use that information despite what's going on and just kind of live our lives? And we don't have to talk much about it beyond that. I think because you are actually healing people when you do that. And that's kind of why when I talk to my sister, I let her whine about or panic about, I hate calling it cases. The, the uh, like A case used to have a clinical definition, which was a positive test of some description with presentation of symptoms. Right. Anyway, but she'll say, oh, there's all these cases in the east of France and what a shock. It's two weeks after some festival. And I'm like, oh, God, she's not at the stage yet where I can even drop into that viral world story where, you know, viruses cause disease and are these little particles that move around and whatever. But she's not ready for me to drop in and say asymptomatic transmission is almost non-existent. And surface-based transmission is non-existent. And this is World Health Organization numbers right. that they just don't tell you about. Like, I can't even, she's not ready for that yet. But she's in a place of fear and kind of isolated because she lives in, well, not isolated, she's got a family there, but not the family she grew up with, which is all in Australia. So the best thing is to keep talking to her rather than get in an argument about fucking the French case Deming for that reason, which is it's healing. You are called to do that. And it sucks because not like we're right and they're wrong, because they're 100 percent wrong. And we're just definitionally mostly wrong, because that's just how this goes. You're not at Davos, right? But you can make the world better by alleviating someone's fear or giving them actual healthful advice. And it's not just the fear stuff, but like we chatted before, and I think it's hilarious. I was not expecting, although I, you know, massively pro-keto and have been for years, I was not expecting the keto community to be the cavalry I needed. But like literally three weeks under 20 carbohydrate grams a day, and you will not die of this thing, whatever your chronic conditions are or so on. Like you are three weeks of a low-carb diet away from the prison of fear. Like that's that's mental. You can be like an obese accountant in his or her mid-50s, and yeah, you'll still be overweight by then. But the actual inflammation and cytokines that comes with the modified carbohydrates and seed oils will have diminished dramatically so that when you do encounter like a negative health experience, it's not going to kill you. That plus vitamin D and sunlight and, you know, meditation and being happy, you can do this. You can actually help people with it. If you are that scared, put down the Cheetos. (laughs) Right, right. That is something that uh, I've really kind of been dancing around a lot this year as I go to Walmart and I see 300 pound people with greasy hair and their stomachs popping out of their shirt and they got gloves and a mask on. And I'm like, oh, you're really concerned about your health. You've really thought about your health, haven't you? And it's just so much easier to go with the narrative that the gloves and the mask will protect me rather than actually take the reins of this thing because it's very difficult and armor up your immune system. But Clearly, we know that. Well, that's because, you know, not everyone does get to come with us, Greg, and that's because of that. And it's the shows that you were doing, it's funny, like, you've been all over the Rockefeller Medicine stuff to your tremendous credit for years. Some of those health and pharma episodes are historically, I think, the best. Oh. It's where I first encountered Del Bigtree and so on, right? So it is the world story of Rockefeller Medicine, which tells them, yes, you are allowed. Carbohydrates should be at the bottom of your food pyramid and it doesn't matter if they're genetically modified and you should stay at home and wait for a experimental gene therapy 
And then you can go back to your normal healthful life of fast food and sedentary living. That is the world story. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people don't want to leave it. They don't want to leave that. It is better for them sitting on the couch, having poor people deliver food to them, waiting for an experimental gene therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's the class attack, right? They're, I mean, not obviously I'm wild. I was from the very beginning wildly anti these house arrests, but places like America and to some extent Australia are the same. They didn't really happen. It was the middle class stayed home or the working class brought them things. Like that's not the same. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's true. That's true. Uh, the class analysis speaks for itself, but people aren't ready to leave that world story yet. And I'm not sure it'll suck, but I'm not sure what it is that will um, get them to change that. Yeah, we're we're going to live through it. <laughs> yeah, not my favorite couple of years, I will say that. And no. to make this more weird, you did mention archons earlier, and we have talked a lot in past shows about the elite's secret religion and their unadvertised belief system. And we've tried to introduce a better take to the conspiracy culture than the overly simplistic, they're just a bloodthirsty cabal of one-dimensional baby-eating Satanists. But when it comes to the spiritual aspects of this operation, you say, the entity is using the elite as finger puppets. One of the chief lieutenant archons is making a play for the top job, the role of Demiurge. While that is provocative, can you elaborate on the unseen forces and motivations that are at play in this overall op? What do you mean by what you said there? Sure. So I am most days an animist, which means spirits are real. And so archons for, so that is a metaphor in the sense that I don't think this entity is like literally wearing them as finger puppets, right? But this, one of the cycle models that I first encountered as a kid was in Robert Anton Wilson's books in Cosmic Trigger, and it was the westward movement of capital model. So if you look at, say, China about 400 BC, and then you kind of move through the Near East, well, actually even earlier than that, but let's say you go from Sumer in Egypt to Rome, to the rise of like Spanish and Portuguese empires, to the rise of the British Empire, and then of course the rise of America. But the American story is an East Coast one because it's the sort of bankers and Wall Street. And then it becomes a West Coast one, which is sort of was before his time, Bob Wilson's time. But we've lived through that, which is the Silicon Valley, the movement of capital and power into something like Silicon Valley, which we're experiencing now. And it is in the process in the next decade of moving into China. And so there's this model through history of the center of capital moving westward, kind of like circulating, right? So this entity that this is the ultimate expression, but by the same token, final expression, it's the boss fight with the sort of AI technocrat demon that is powering the Silicon Valley view of the world. It is this managerialist idea that the world is better and is improved under the full supervision and governance of this being. It's literally the sin of the demiurge or the sin of Lucifer in, in some characterizations of it, right? So to do a broad Gnostic cosmology, and there are problems with doing that, it's this idea that there is an entity that wishes to replicate God's capacity to create and sort of creates the physical world. And depending on if you're Valentinian or whatever, human souls are trapped down here and kind of power it, Matrix style, right? So 
it can't create though it can only govern and this entity is kind of like a tyrannical toddler at a birthday where it's trying to force people like you go and play on the horse now and you do the bouncing castle and it's sort of trying to bully people into a semblance of life because it thinks it's better so this demon and thus its finger puppets really think there is fundamentally no difference between children being in a classroom however problematic that structure is anyway and children sitting at home staring at a screen having no human contact it's like what do you mean it's the same it's like it's not and the entity that cannot tell the difference is this archon it's ai as a demon it is this being that is literally trying to control creation because it thinks it can improve on it it thinks it is out of order or replete with redundancies and legacy systems which is God bless Whitney Webb. One of the things she found with her early foyers, right, that the NSA and and other, well, the Pentagon and military industrial complex is in a technocratic race with China because it views Western civilization of having too many legacy systems, which include things like driving to work or going to school, all, all that stuff we would call life. <laughs> um, but that's the difference. So that's what I mean. This entity, and it is the final play for it, right? Because the previous so what happens, why this was reasonably predictable for me was not just the timings, but if you looked at what was going on in terms of financial markets and sort of post Bretton Woods stuff that happened in 2018, in the lead up to it, the repo crisis we had about 13, was January 2021 now, let's say end of 2018, would have brought down the euro if it wasn't for going direct, because there was no opportunity or appetite to bail it out. And the euro and the eurozone is the cornerstone of this project because it is to some extent the test run. And it's where people who've never had a real job get to spend entire careers not paying tax, technocratically governing people, right? So it's no surprise to me that the biggest or the most immediate hit, as far as I can tell in the models, before it hits the US happens in the EU because it's all part of this expansion and then collapse of this entity's attempt to control the world. So I had Dr. Farrell on the show earlier, and I'm really interested in like his kind of use of the Tower of Babel as a sort of repeated moment in history. Yeah. This is one of them. So I like the Gnostic metaphor set better, but you can say that this is an attempt to build Babel. So having replacing currency with a gamified set of permissions in an app that controls everything, including where you can go and what you're allowed to eat and so on, is a Tower of Babel. That's why I had him on the show to talk about it. And they always fall. I think archetypally, events like that, and this comes back to how we don't understand time, I think the Tower of Babel is always falling. And something Terence McKenna said, which I love, is Rome falls nine times a day. And there is something, we would have better languages for this if we were, you know, dynastic Egyptian or whatever. But there are certain events that demonstrate to us that our experience of time is not linear. And they're these deep archetypal events. And one of them is this, like we are, and you can do a Philip K. Dick thing and say the empire never ended. And we're all kind of in this weird hologram projection on top of the third century AD Roman empire. That kind of works too. Not necessarily physically true as much as it is a useful metaphor. We're in that moment. So that's what I mean. This is an entity that is making the same play it always does because it thinks it knows better how you should live your life and how life should operate on Earth. And that's the big metaphor statement, right? Underneath it, you get 
all the smaller versions of that ghastly idea, like the Gateses wanting there to be fewer brown people on Earth and all that kind of eugenic stuff. That's all awful, obviously, but they are subsets of this macro delusion, this macro arconic Luciferian, whatever word you want for it, delusion that they think they know better how the world should be run. And it's why they can't be stopped. It just has to go up and go down because they think they're saving the world. You can't stop someone who is trying to save the world. They're not saving it. And we will work it out as a population with enough time to prevent, well, not stop it, but with enough time to end it. Because that's what always happens. The tower always falls. But you can't, all of this, uh, the bit that I am disappointed coming back to Quito is their refusal to take that final next step of like, well, this is crazy. Of course it's crazy. Like masks and keeping people at home were never about medicine. So there's no amount of times you can share the NIH data or the NHS data in the case of UK or, or whatever. There's no amount of times you can share that with the power structure and say, I think we've overreacted, don't you? Shouldn't we go back to normal? Because we should never have done it in the first place, right? That's not. So this kind of falls back into that world story of arguing rather than moving forward in a scenario planning model is you won't win that argument. Of course, they're right, but it's irrelevant. And that's the, that's the difficulty. They're right, but it's irrelevant, right? Because they won't take that next step to say, well, hang on, we've just had nine months of doing not just the opposite, but alleged medical interventions that have nothing to do with health and everything to do with bulldozing the real economy and building instead this technocratic simulation of it. They won't say that. Their version of sitting on the couch waiting for the vaccine is hoping that people will one day be as smart as they are and that the political system functions rationally. It has never functioned rationally. It has always been the uneven distribution of power, right? So this is what I mean. Like, there's no kind of arguing our way to it, but just because we're we're in that iconic moment of the the final play for it. It's like the boss level for this entity. It fails, but we have to live through that. Right, right. A lot of people are thinking, when can we get back to trust in the media and politicians? I'm ready for that world. Yeah. It's like, where was that world? Exactly. It's like we've got, to, we've got to restore trust in our institution. So one of the other shows I had this year, which is kind of about this and kind of not, I had James from a podcast called Hermetics on to talk about accelerationism. And accelerationism, the way he described it, I really liked, is that we have reached a moment where no one is happy with the direction the world is going. And that's true. Like, that's a really good way of thinking about it, because I don't imagine Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates are particularly, and whoever, like I'm, I mean them, but I mean them metaphorically as well. Right. I don't think they're particularly happy with how well this op's going, right? And I don't think Pelosi is happy with how well her op's going. And Trump certainly isn't happy with how well his op's going. And you look across the spectrum and we are heading in a direction very rapidly that no one wants. Yeah. And every intervention accelerates it. So that's the accelerationism. So this kind of like, if you go on an anti-mask march, that accelerates this trajectory into where we don't want, because then you'll end up with either more mask mandates, or they'll up the cycles on the PCR, and you'll get, you, do you know what I mean? But by the yeah, same yeah. token, doing more of that from the other side, doing it from the, what is it, 
the Covidian side rather than the Covidiot, because now that's how we idiots. Anyway, there's no intervention that will correct this. And that's how civilizations collapse. So that's how you know you're in that moment where it's not that something goes wrong because things go wrong all the time. It's when a bunch of things go wrong and any attempt to correct them makes it worse. That's how planes crash. It's not one thing that goes wrong. It's one thing that goes wrong and another and another. And then any attempt to correct them makes it worse. So that's what happens with a collapse. And we're there, right? We're at a moment where that whole world story, the good and the bad news is that whole world story is ending. And it's built on stuff that is going away forever. In the process of doing this, it's not just the media and government we've lost faith in. By the end of this process, academia, big pharma, medical industry, all these things that used to be the cornerstones of respectability and expressions of truth will never be again, right? And so I use Charles Fort's model for it, but we don't, I think we've done a show about that before. Yeah. We're moving into a world where things are differently true and where we're experiencing the end of how we used to make things true. And when you see it that way, rather than like intervening, whether you're intervening in the keto sense of like, well, this is clearly an overreaction and we don't need, which it is, and we don't need vaccines, even if they do work, which is true, and all of this stuff, like, we don't rationally return to the old world, nor do we irrationally return to it. That whole world story is finishing. Mm -hmm. Well said. There are definitely many levels to this thing. And I want to see people thinking about all of them and not just the lower level stuff in particular. And I also want to fold in ufology and aliens here. Hell of a segue. But this is another area where some people think alien is just a code word for demon and the elite are working with these demons on a decades long rebranding campaign so they can finally emerge as our new space gods, which, you know, does imply more of a, a conscious partnership to the people who are, you know, making that argument. But we have seen some curious movement in the disclosure space in 2020. It makes me think it is a piece of the Great Reset Pie, or it wouldn't be making it into the conversation, though it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I kind of mentioned this, I think, on, on a previous show in 2020. But the race with China is a race with Eurasia. What's going on at the moment is you have the Anglo-Americans, which includes the EU. I mean that in the Carol Quigley sense. I don't just mean the Brits and, and the US. Quote, unquote, Western world, right? Is in a race with Eurasia, particularly China and Russia, to build the currency replacement first. And when I say currency replacement, it is that what you spoke about with Alison, the whole control grid, right? Because the person who gets there first has a tremendous, or the collection of nations that get there first has a tremendous advantage in being able to tip the other side into it. So the reason we're doing it in the West is because we're replacing Bretton Woods, which was how we organized the economic activity of the world so that it benefited us. We're replacing Bretton Woods with this. And if we can get in particular, it's why it's hitting so hard in the US and the UK, and to some extent, Western Europe, although for slightly different reasons, that's a tremendous amount of economic activity. So if, if that can be cohered together in the one currency replacement system, then you get to turn around, in theory, to Russia and China and be like, well, we've built, this is like the new thing. This is like our SWIFT and all the kind of like payment infrastructure that we've previously used for the last 70 years. So there's a race to do that first, right? Hang on, why am I, why am I talking about this? Where was the question again? 
why is disclosure and ufology part of the Great Reset? Yes, here we go. That was it. As part of that, um, hedge funds and other organizations that invest in China are being bullied out of doing so because it's about pulling money out of it and cohering it into the new system. Now, this probably does lead to war. And understandably, for his very good historical reasons, China and Russia will probably have nothing to do with this system. And I think that's why they built... Well, China's technically a little bit ahead in the central bank digital currency replacement. And Russia got there first with a vaccine, which if I ever get the choice, I will take before any of the other ones, because it might just be saline. And if you look at what they're doing with the UFOs, I think, as is always the case, when you see these kind of like silly disclosure movements come out of Pentagon and Pentagon adjacent programs, I think it is pointed at the Anglo-Americans' enemies, which is to say, we are serious enough about this that we will roll out the flying saucers if we need to. So I think that's where, going along with the Great Reset, we have all this kind of like more disclosure, blah, 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 blah stuff. It's because they're so serious about replacing Bretton Woods with this new Agenda 2030 world that they are prepared to go to war with Russia and China about it. And they're serious enough about that war that they will use a bunch of the military infrastructure that we aren't supposed to know exists. So you could see the same thing happening with the 2016 election, where there was all that UFO stuff and all those UFO movies, which was clearly anticipating a, a Clinton presidency and, and maybe even a war with Russia then. And we're seeing the same thing now. And it's, as far as I can tell, the same usual signaling of we will use exotic technology on you and say it's UFOs as part of that general positioning. That's my read on why all this UFO stuff is happening now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good read. It actually came up in your astrology forecast with Austin, but the language that they're using in some of these threads is basically the aliens want to meet you, but they want humanity to be united first. In other words, oh, yeah. we need a one world government. And yeah. so that's probably a big part of it. Maybe the flying saucers will help the empire beat the resisting nations into the fold of that one world government. Yeah, I think that's like Galactic Federation stuff. And Reagan said it in the 80s. It's the same idea right. of using this fiction. And I don't mean that aliens or UFOs are fiction, but using this narrative that is a fiction to do that kind of coherence and when it comes out of like the israeli military you realize that that's what they're doing they're doing everything they can to bully the rest of the world into this new technocratic world story and yeah it doesn't it's strange times what can i say yeah. <laughs> well let me ask you this if they're going to stick with the story that the flying saucers are not ours then at some point we're going to have to be presented with something more than a tic-tac ship. And that's where I start to wonder what that thing will be. Would it just be some kind of hologram? Or another weird thing I've heard is uh, that this might be the reason why they've done all these Franken-creature human-animal chimera experiments in deep state laboratories because they need something to use to say, actually, these are the flyers of the ship. Something they control, of course. It's like when old series Star Trek just painted a dog blue and made it an alien. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea what it is. I will say that it does look kind of likely that 
some fairly impressive mind control has been used in certain parts of the world as part of this kind of great reset up. So we don't know what they have. And also, I don't think they know. And this is a big part of the vertical line presentation. It's a really good term that I got from Catherine Fitz, which is that we're moving into the global invention room. This comes back to, you know more about cryptocurrency than I do, although my crypto's had a very good 2020. It's not ready for its close-up. And nevertheless, we're heading in that direction. So I don't think they know what they're going to do next. And that's exciting. That's exciting because if you can be with the moment in the correct way and be scenario planning and moving forward with coherence and optimism, there will be opportunities to, and I don't just mean something crass like make money, although we certainly need to, it's there will be opportunities in this world that are for us as well as for them. So I don't know. I don't know if they know. What happens as far as I can tell when they roll out the UFO air cover is they're not sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I get the feeling they don't. The trouble is with all of this stuff, it's the dreadnought war. As soon as you reveal it, you reset everything and not in a great reset sense. So as soon as there are flying sources, the entire US, the official US kind of like military infrastructure is effectively obsolete because, and it's the same for everyone. So this is what happened with the dreadnought war between Britain and Germany in the lead up to World War One. is as soon as you build a ship, you replace it with wood. As soon as you build a ship out of metal, you have made redundant the entire Royal Navy, right? right? Because you have to reset technologically. And it's why I know they threaten to bring out the kind of cool shit, but as soon as they do, the deterrent, you kind of reset down to everyone's back on a level playing field because then assuming they don't have their own versions of it, which they probably do, places like Russia and China and Iran. Now, okay, well, UFOs are not just real, they work and either shoot one down or you can realize that and very quickly get to if it's electrogravitic or whatever, and you reset the playing field. So let's say the US has 50 flying sources, proverbially, right? It won't take Russia and China that long to build 50. And then so that enormous military advantage, which the Royal Navy made out of wood, had over Germany, didn't have as soon as they built a metal ship. Right. And that's kind of why I think we've seen the UFO story roll out like dog shit on a stick rather than as an actual thing. It's just to kind of like keep people away and let them know that you're sort of prepared to use it, but don't want to. So I don't know if they know what's going to happen. In fact, I'm quietly confident they don't. This is just beyond unprecedented, right? Yes, yes, I agree with you. It does seem like they put things in motion and they didn't necessarily have the end figured out. And now that the pressure is so high, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a struggle to to get there. It's like, oh man, you know, I hope we can pull this one off, but we're already into the dive. I hope we can pull out of it. They've burned the proverbial boats, right? Like, yeah, um, that's why there is no going back because even if we can't see the damage yet, and this is kind of what Austin and I spoke about, it's been caused. So. 55% of restaurants in the US are looking at closure in the first, in total, it'll be 55% of restaurants are looking at closure in the next couple of months. And a quarter of them already have, right? So more than half of the restaurants in the United States are about to go bankrupt or about to go out of business. This is what I mean. We can't see the damage yet. So there's no going back. They've burned the boats. And it does beg the question of why. And I really do think it's because I think the plan was pulled forward about a year. Although I'm prepared to be, not that it matters, this comes back to like the conspiratainment stuff that I like, 
I'm prepared to be argued wrong about this, but I think the plan was pulled forward and I think it was pulled forward because the repo crisis was going to unwind the entire euro area in particular. So I think it's that sort of scramble. And I think they had to burn the boats. It's like, right, we're here now. Because if you look at the build out of documentation and testing around, which again, that's why it was so obvious this was going to happen, around central bank digital currencies through 2018, stable coin and prioritizing a stable world order and all the stuff that the BIS and the various meetings of central bankers were just so clearly saying and publishing in 2018. Most of the time, they'd say, like, we're, we're heading in this direction. The next step is trials, right? And they didn't get to the trials as much like the vaccines. They didn't actually get to the trials phase. It's just here now. <laughs> and that says to me, they've had to pull the plan forward by a year. And I honestly thought that based on the astrology, speaking of the Great Conjunction, it didn't look like Saturn in Capricorn business to me. It looked like Saturn in Aquarius business, which is why I had all the um, travel plans. I thought it was going to be the last year for it. But 2020, so the plan, as far as I can tell, has been pulled forward a year. Not that it matters. We're just in the global invention room now. That's what it looks like to me. So the good news is, well, there's plenty of good news, actually. The good news is they don't win in the long term. So we can keep a hold of that because they never win. Like, this is a Babel replay. The more immediate good news is, as Catherine Fitz says, we're in the global invention room which means if you can stay coherent and actually see what's going on and not get distracted by conspiracy facts or whatever, there are opportunities to be nimble and move forward and bring the right response to the right moment. So it's all about the living field and and so on. And it will be, presumably, you will feel it, especially if you have experience being with the living field. The moment will come when being out on the street in a sort of mass protest sense, will do something, will actually shift the field. But you can kind of feel at the moment it doesn't. That moment will come, like fishing on the beach. So I think that's there's the short-term good news of the global invention room mm. and the longer-term good news of, well, they don't win. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, fair enough. And let me ask you, what is next for you? I know you have that book in progress that you told us a bit about and some big premium upgrade called the Ansible. What can you say about these things you got going on for your premium memberships for, uh, you know, the people listening who might be not yet on board, but are definitely probably thinking about it? Yeah, so we, part of my scenario planning involves, and this is in the worst case scenarios, and it's been bandied about as one particular iteration of the Great Reset, but once they've destroyed real world independent businesses. They will come for digital ones, possibly. And that means a kind of switching off of the internet. Like a great reset of the internet essentially involves the destruction of the open web and the opportunity or invitation to rebuild it on Facebook or what have you, right? So we were talking about you'll still get to have a podcast. It'll just be on Facebook, which means it will not, yours and mine will not be allowed. <laughs> right. Or YouTube, you know, for example. Yeah, like... same thing. And that's in fact happening, right? Yeah. And also on an individual basis, like the the premium members are different, and this is cool, different conceptualizations of what they think is going on. There is broad agreement on how we move forward. The whole point of the vertical line as a metaphor is at the beginning of this, I said, I'm going to only have discussions that are win-win rather than win-lose with the membership. So that's why we kind of park things like whether you think the virus is a bioweapon or the rest of it and kind of 
move forward and address the things we know are going to happen, which is a severe economic distress and and increased surveillance and, and all the rest of it. So that's been really successful. And part of that process has been building an area where, and the Ansible is a sort of matrix build on an end-to-end -end encrypted private server. So we have a way of communicating, and that includes free video calls between premium members and the rest of it that is not <laughs> part of the internet. So it's our pirate utopia and it continues to build in capacity. And that's just because there is so much medicine in talking to people who kind of, even if it's not seeing the world the exact same way, are moving forward into the world in a similar way, right? Mm -hmm. And that's about as much, like, because the premium members are very diverse in, in how they think and what they do. That's about fair. And I get it because we all think about it very strongly. I haven't used Facebook in many years, and, and I don't think Twitter will last for me until the end of 2021 and so on. But there is so much medicine in speaking to people, even if it's digitally distributed. So it's like, well, what platforms do we have for that? So I built one. And it's brand new, and it's still in beta, but it's working great. as a. And I think we'll see more of that kind of stuff. So that's just sort of additional features and capacities to match the range of scenarios as best I can that I think are coming, right? doesn't necessarily mean the internet gets switched off. And if it's an EMP situation, it's just everything's gone, right? It's kind of the proverbial, if it gets to the stage where I have to survive off the vegetables I grow in my yard, it's not a good world. It's not a world I want to live in. I don't care, right? So if it's an EMP that destroys the open web and everything else with it, then that's just what happens. But if it's more a permission-based, which appears to be what they're doing, right? So that you will need some kind of compliance or approval to use Stripe and PayPal and those kind of structural platforms. The things they'll come for last are going to look like mine. <laughs> so it's that kind of stuff when it comes to the Ansible. But for me in general, I spent, as I said, 2020, nine months doing the grieving thing, but then repositioning the ship and sort of reorganizing it. And it was a nine-month job to grieve and sit with the good things that I'm looking forward to now that I've lost some stuff, like another Guggenheim ritual and and the jungle and this weird Holy Grail trip. That's what I was doing in Europe in March. All these kind of things that just now never happen. But I'm here in this amazing and remarkable place, and we've bought kayaks and more invested in local Tasmanian stuff, the permaculture thing, and some sort of secret indigenous projects and all that kind of stuff. So it's a process of repositioning, and that's what I'm doing. And it's that range of scenarios, because like you, I'm certainly not going to take a gene-altering injectable to get on a plane. So one of my scenarios is, well, I might be here for 18 months, and it's been about how I make that good and what adaptabilities and responsivenesses can I build into the membership that matches enough scenarios for enough people. And so that's structurally what we've been doing, and it's been I'm quite proud of it, frankly. But in terms of actual fun stuff in 2021, the Q1 course is on angels and angel magic, which again will probably set the tone as the, because the members, for people who don't know, the premium members vote on courses. And at the beginning of 2020 for Q1, they picked a wealth magic course, which meant that we spent a lot of time sitting with things like how money works and how desire works and how to move how to have desire and joy be the things you move towards in the uneven terrain of what's going on in the world. And that was just really, because at the end of Q1, we get the pandemic. So something about angels will set the tone for the world for 2021. That's going to be really fun. I've been doing 
Angel Magic for how old am I? 20 years now. I'm really looking forward to that. The book's coming out. And then after that, Global Invention Room. Who knows? <laughs> wow. Very cool. Yes. The um the Ansible thing seems very ambitious, but it is where my mind has been too. It's weird because I get a lot of praise from colleagues for having more control over my system than a lot of other people do, like a video podcast that needs YouTube a little more than I need YouTube or someone who's just on Patreon. But I only see the vulnerabilities. And uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm going to probably be focusing on this year as well. Like, it's obviously better to be proactive about it. So what I said to the members, and I'm sure you would, if you haven't explicitly said it, and I can't recall when you have, to the plus members, is... I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure, not just that this continues because you find value in it, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure your lives are better. I might fail. <laughs> this might get blown off the internet, same as yours. But it's, and I think that's not, an expectation is the wrong way of saying it. But we all, I think, have faith that you will continue towards that sort of robustness. And we need to be in a situation, what I said to them was, well, if anyone is going to have joyous and successful lives over the next eight or nine years or whatever, it's going to be us. And that's yes. <laughs> as in us as a membership. And that was kind of like the promise I made. And that's why there's things like the Ansible. And it's the same for you. Like all we can expect of you is to do your best. And that does involve maybe being a little bit which I think we have been in the right way, more paranoid about the range of scenarios. Because I was certainly, I was never going to go anywhere near Patreon or any of that stuff. And I haven't. And I get praised for the robustness of the setup as well, but I only see the flaws and we can but do our best, I think, Greg. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is exactly what I was going to end on because I was going to bring up that I watched the Vertical Line presentation just after I finished putting up my last show of 2020. and. You said that thing that is just so, so in line with what I tried to say in that wrap up of the last show of 2020, when you said to your premium members, and I got the quote right here, I'm making you the promise of my lifetime. As rough as the road ahead is, the people who find the most joy and health and achieve more of their dreams through this next decade will be us. And that is just pretty powerful, man. That's very heavy. And I want my people to feel the same way about THC, just that I am searching to bring people the right information for them to make them better prepared, to fine tune their thoughts about what's important and what's useful and provide medicine for really tough times. And I am on the journey too. I'm really just a placeholder for all the people listening a lot of the time. And I'm just glad you also said joy because we got to have fun too. We got to have the right tone. I say a lot that the overall THC worldview should make you better at life, make you more knowledgeable, more open to maybe things you weren't open to. And I'm definitely here to be real, not to make anyone feel stressed out or defeated, but I think I want to make a better conspiracy culture the same way you've upgraded what a magic school can be. And that's why I've had you here more than anyone else. I, I know that you will make good on that promise, and I hope that we're right there with you. Yeah, and the joy part, because I know you struggle with it. Not struggle is the wrong word, but it's it's possible you overthink. Th there's medicine in 
and I know this for the premium members, but like if there's a new THC episode and it isn't about the pandemic, that's good, just as it is if it's if it's relevant information, because enjoying life is supporting the living field. Enjoying life is activism in the face of attempts to make life unenjoyable. And so if it is an episode, an ancient aliens episode or whatever stuff, people listen to the show for that reason and to just hear it is the same thing. It's supporting the living field because it's people taking an hour, hopefully two hours, to um, <laughs> to experience joy and things that they like, despite against what is going on. So uh, I think you found over the 2020, and you should be correct, congratulated for this too, the right sort of balance of you being on shows and providing updates when they're, this is how I do it with the newsroom, right? If people need to know a new thing about what's going on, so like Alison McDowell or whatever, have her on the show, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you've got that right. I think you've got, you're going to do your best to make sure everyone's informed about the things that are materially relevant about what's going on, but also provide the joy of realizing that all this stuff that's going on is happening in a fucking crazy universe of spirits and you know, all kinds of stuff. That's still, this is what I mean. It's still in play. The universe is still alive, right? Mm-hmm. Amen. No shortage of mysteries left to continue to explore despite the big operation. So I'm with you on that. And you are the man. I am lucky to know you. Thanks again for taking the time. I hope you get off the rock before too long, but keep doing what you do. You as well, Greg. It's the end of the world as we know it, but now I feel fine. Always a pleasure to check in with the great Gordon Magic Making White. And ringing in the new year seems like a hell of a time to do it. So much good stuff. I really don't even know what to start commenting on. I'm sure the vast, vast majority of THC members are well familiar with Gordon by now. But if you're new to THC and you started since his last show... The past 12 episodes that he's been on, that is a good thread to follow. And of course, if you're new to him, check out runesoup.com. I really admire Gordon's work ethic and creativity when it comes to his premium membership offerings. I just got set up on the Ansible that he talked about, and it's pretty impressive. Kind of like a private RuneSoup-only encrypted Discord. But that sort of stuff has certainly been on my mind lately. How do we keep THC going when the screws get tighter and tighter? Of course, we have a pretty robust private server now, but it's not physically mine, which is something I've considered. But if the internet is down, or the grid is down, then that doesn't do a lot of good. It seems hard to kick me off the internet completely. I mean... RSS is pretty decentralized. And if I can't process payments, I have a plan B and a plan C. And I hope I never have to implement them because they're not that great. I do have all the plus members emails and we could go to a private email delivery for the show if we had to. And if even that kind of a process wouldn't work, then I think the whole world is falling apart. At least the cold, dead, artificial digital overlay of it is. And I'm probably, at that point, the last person you guys are going to be worried about. And understandably so. But cheers to the good times. While we can, right? 
And that's what I love about Gordon. We can talk about pretty stark things, but still have a good time doing it. It's funny because as I record this on January 6th, there's a lot of people running around D.C. not heeding some of the very advice in this show. In fact, I pulled a Philip K. Dick quote off of Gordon's blog that I was going to reference in the interview, although now seems about as good a time as any. But he says, To fight the empire is to be infected by its derangement. This is a paradox. Whoever defeats a segment of the empire becomes the empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. Thereby, it becomes its enemies. Seems fairly relevant, literally, right now. Though the last I looked at the news, this whole storm at the Capitol was pretty much fizzling out. Although now all the politicians are talking about how outraged, offended, and scared they were today. They're talking about a second impeachment and all that jazz. But what are you going to do? The show must go on. And it is actually kind of fortuitous to release this right now. Because you could say this was our first big test of 2021. How far did you get sucked in? How many hours of your day did these events claim? Or did you take a break at least long enough to make a nice home-cooked meal for yourself and someone you love? I hope so. But if I were looking for warning signs that 2021 won't be the return to normalcy that some people out there are hoping for, well, six days in, I guess this was Exhibit A. Solutionism is part of the problem, though. That is a mantra to remember. As well as concepts like the end of the world story. This is a big topic, and it heavily relates to not only the dominant of wider inclusion we've talked about, but also the space weather. The consensus behind what is true will change. We've been banging on this door for years, and this is good change, I think. But like the Land Before Time example, the road to the Great Valley is not an easy path. It's full of dangers, full of sharp teeth, and all that. But it's the only path. You can't stay where you are. You can't pretend that the life you knew will return. You have to move yourself. Find a few tree stars along the way and get to the goddamn Great Valley. You can do it, Petrie. <laughs> of course, there are people who won't see it coming, who will wait too long. Don't be those people. But it's a great analogy that so many of these low-res arguments are essentially a failure to recognize that being one of the builders of something new is far better than combing through the decay of the old structure, fighting over the scraps, arguing over whose fault it was, holding up pieces of twisted metal saying, I think we could still use this. Maybe worry less about the old and get excited about the new. Who knows? But I had a tough time naming this one, which has happened before because we tend to cover so many things when Gordon is here. And I went with actionable intelligence as one of the terms to use, obviously because he said it a couple of times. But it simultaneously applies to the critique of conspiracy culture's tendency to get obsessed over unknowable details. When sometimes you just have to work out that there is a lie being told and then think about where... That lie is leading things rather than uncovering 
the whole real raw story behind the narrative because seeing the motivation is like a window into understanding where your opponent is trying to get to. But actionable intelligence also applies to the section about how to talk to people about all this. Because part of it is feeling them out for the story that they are in, as Gordon might say. Before you even start trying to approach them, you got to know how. So you do a little digging for that actionable intelligence. You're digging for context before you decide on the right intellectual tool for the job. A proverbial scalpel rather than a hammer, right? But I also love that terminology that the predator class has earned the boat, so to speak. We all know that crazy Cortez story, but it is a powerful one, and it seems to resonate with what's going on in the big game. Maybe part of that is because the people pushing the timeline from the top are definitely not the same people working on the technological implementation, and maybe that will be their biggest failing. The systems they want to onboard us to just aren't really built out enough, and public awareness is just not getting to the levels they'd want. As Gordon said, we're at a point where nobody seems to be happy with how it's going. I would concur. The UFO op, the crypto onboarding, the COVID data, and everything that doesn't justify the vaccine, the lockdowns. It's like they kicked off some sort of sick Rube Goldberg machine and are just trying to finish building it before that marble catches up. I mean, really, just listen to the news on the vaccine. They wanted 100 million vaccinated by the end of the year, 2020, and they have 1 million. Shit's not going to plan. I fully think they would get 100 million people to line up if they could just infrastructurally get it done. But failure can be a beautiful thing. And I don't think anybody's moving from a firm no to a yes on the vaccine. And time is only on our side when it comes to more people wondering if it's even needed. Also, Gordon spent an extra 20 minutes with us today. I appreciate that. I tried to split it down the middle, but even still, we were packing so much in, we really didn't dive into the best assets in the magical toolbox for the stormy times ahead as early as I had planned. I really wanted to make it there in the first hour because so many of you have asked to get back into magic, and we're talking to the best. But say la vie. I thought the first hour was great, and you can always sign up for Plus if you want to hear Gordon's magical advice for these times in particular, as well as contract clearing, entity attachments, and being as unhijacked as possible, virus punk, the state, and death. And of course, we had to fit in some kind of new movie reference, and today it was what we can learn from Qui-Gon Jinn. And then a section that got pretty personal when it comes to Gordon's thoughts on healing my trick ear. Not only is he very educated and experienced when it comes to power of eight intention, but also about the mechanisms behind things like this and shamanic healing. And he knows me pretty well too, I guess, which obviously factored in. I'm deaf to the thing that will heal my deafness. Huh. I mean, <laughs> that is deep. I've been thinking about it a lot. I never made that connection before between hearing spirit and my right ear. 
maybe I'm already reading too much into something that was meant as a metaphor, but I am left-handed and I'm much more attracted to the creative, airy, stoner motifs and qualities that tend to be associated with left-handed people, but I'm also left-eared, which would be the side of the brain associated with that grounded, logical, practical stuff, the lame stuff. I don't know. So clearly I'm all kinds of messed up, right? But he might have a point with a lot of that because, as he said, it's kind of a loop. And how do you start hearing something that you're deaf to in order to heal your hearing? Where is that cycle broken? Although I would much rather, if given the choice, be able to hear spirit and sense energy than just hear in stereo. That's a no-brainer. But you know, the first question that I asked today was about time and the linear time paradigm industrialized society runs on and how it's not really the right way to think about time. I made some comments about being stuck in the perspective of the Western bubble and then the whole thing about my ear came right back to that in the second hour. So joke's on me. But I get what he was saying. I understand how he's looking at my situation. I just don't know how to break out of that loop. Maybe that East Coast intention group will get me jump-started. It was a very fun show, though. Cathartic for me. Hopefully good medicine for you guys. I think the sentiment that we ended on is worth reiterating. I take my position very seriously. I know he does as well. But that doesn't always mean being serious. Sometimes it means laughing at the absurdity of it all, even when that's not easy to do. But we're also not going to let this kind of stuff that's going out in the world ruin us. We're not going to live in fear. We're not going to contribute to anyone else's trauma. We are going to be a stable, positive presence. We got to greet that energy field with liveliness and happiness and humor. Because, hey, that's how the Salvia entities greeted me. After having just listened to those last joint session voicemail messages, I know this show means a lot to a lot of people. To others, it's just a throwaway show on a long list of disposable digital entertainment. I get that. But the way some people tend to talk to me about this show is pretty deep. And I know that that's mostly about our guests and the great stuff they have to share, as it should be, but I still don't take this position lightly. And even though you and I don't really talk on a personal one-on-one basis very often, or at all, I know you're out there along with many like you, and collectively we should try to be there for each other. I know listening to a podcast is a solo experience, but maybe use the forum. Make friendships in the comments. Find the others, as Gordon would say. So many people do tell me that they feel isolated, but with a little THC networking, you might uncover some local opportunities. Remember, if you've ever had a Plus membership for any length of time, the forum access is forever. So revisit that thread about where people are from, check out your own city. I suppose a window of opportunity is never open forever, as they say. Do they say that? (laughs) 
Someone has to have said that. I think I've talked to myself long enough. Great way to start the new year. Again, big thanks to Gordon and to you, dear listeners. I've done my part. Your move, great resetters, digital debtors, and agents of the anti-life archon. Your fucking from space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard, silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite, gotta be Set me straight. I encourage you to go when you see the saucers glow. One by one, we'll all end up awake. Enlightening the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard. Now we're not asleep. Don't obey the elite. Got a beam to the head. Now we start to wonder. No, we're not the sheep that they. starts to die cabals hate it when we make it so they'll break it and next round they'll erase it it's a big loop what can we do still it's time we had another cause we're not the sheep that they bred us to be got a beam to the head now we start to wonder now we're not asleep cause we got T.A.